G'day everyone, welcome to Lubrication Experts. Um, we've got Jim back, um, which was really exciting. So back by popular demand. Um, the, the last talk that we did on uh, the wind turbine gear royals um, was really well received. And I had a lot of people clamoring, clamoring they were <laughs> for, uh, for, for Jim to come back. So we're going to have a little bit of a discussion. The, the, the sound um, of the din is deafening. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stadium full of people. Um, uh, it's an empty stadium, but it is a stadium. Um, we're going to talk uh, first up on, on gear oils. Jim's got a lot of um, experience working with, with industrial gear oils um, and formulating industrial gear oils. So um, would be really good to get uh, a lot of his insights on kind of like the behind the curtain of the industry, if you like. Um, so obviously Jim needs no introduction, so we might uh, just jump straight into it. Um, Jim, just as a very, uh, maybe a, like a, a fantasy question, let's call it. If you could in design a new industrial gear oil today, you had a completely blank slate and they said, make the best thing that you can. Um, where would you start and what would you do? Wow. Uh, that's a pretty wide open question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, for, and the, the usual response is, you know, that is that that's why engineers hate chemists because we have two hands. You could say on the one hand, do you want a wimpy, cheap thing? But on the other hand, you want something that'll last forever and even your grandchildren don't have to worry about, right? So which, <laughs> which, which do you want, right? So um, I've, I've always been of the opinion that you really want something that'll be as durable as possible because um, you, you never know what's going to happen to a machine in service. That's the, the number one thing why a lot of industrial lubricants get condemned in services, contamination or you know, an ancillary failure that causes some kind of a, a corruption to the sump. So <clears throat> the, the best hydrocarbons that I could, I could grab, which would be metallocene PAOs as a base. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm a fan of alkylated naphthalene. I'm a big fan of alkylated naphthalene. I, I saw your one uh, podcast about alkylated naphthalene and why you love it. Uh, for me, it's the ultimate synthetic base dot. Uh, a lot of people don't like it because it's uh, got a low viscosity index, but I say, don't worry, about don't worry about that. I mean, what you do is you figure out what viscosity you need for the operating temperature and let it rip, right? Um, so, you know, I, I had the, the good fortune of working with uh, ExxonMobil Chemical on the a few flavors of alkylated naphthalene for very high alkylated naphthalene content lubricants. And those lubricants were, and still are quite bulletproof, the SHC Rara series. Uh, and we also had the SHC Elite series, which unfortunately I found out got canceled earlier in 2021. Um, but that's, that's what I would start with. I would, I would definitely not use an ester as a co-base unless I absolutely had to. Uh, esters bring with them a lot of advantages, but a lot of disadvantages, right? They're, they're much more delicate than alkylated naphthalene, and they're even more delicate than uh, synthetic hydrocarbons. So, and I'm also a fan of synthetic hydrocarbons versus the, you know, heavily hydroprocessed uh, um, mineral oils. Uh, one of the big downsides of, of mineral oils that are heavily hydroprocessed, I mean, you could get Group three base stacks, you know, from uh, processing of group ones or group twos. But the more you process those base stacks, the less options you have in terms of viscosity, right? And when you're talking about industrial gears, industrial gearing kind of starts at ISO 150 and goes up from there. You know, uh, worm gears, ISO 460, ISO 680. And you're never going to get there with uh, anything that comes from a uh, directly from a, a refinery and a barrel crude. You're going to have to get that from some type of synthetic PAO. So yeah, that's def definitely what I would start with was PAO and AN um, in some type of mixture, uh, because obviously none of the additives that we typically work with are mostly soluble in hydrocarbons only. So you need a, 
you need a co-base of some sort. So, yeah. Okay. Um, Interesting. So um, maybe if we take a little bit of a detour there um, into sort of the alkylated naphthalene discussion. Um, okay. Uh, because that, that's a topic that people have shown a bit of interest in as well. Um, so with esters, you know, when we say that they're delicate, I think usually we're referring to kind of like the hydrolytic stability, right? Um, yes. Because thermal stability seems to be okay in that, like, let's say, for example, they're, they're pretty commonly used in the jet oils. So they seem to yes. operate at high temperatures okay. It's just their uh, susceptibility to water. So with, with AMs, um, maybe a couple of questions because people don't really know all that much about them, to be honest. Um, so in the presence of water, are they pretty much bulletproof in, in the same way that, um, you know, like a PAO doesn't really interact with water would be the first question. And the second one is, what is the breakdown mechanism for an AM when it eventually does fail? Ah, okay. Uh, so the, the first question is, yeah, they behave like another hydrocarbon. You know, they, they essentially, I mean, just, if I can just take a little do loop uh, on your uh, side detour there about, about esters and their thermal stability, I agree 100% that they're thermally stable for very high temperature applications, which are also anhydrous for the most part, right? So there's no water and, you know, uh, Prior to my few decades of working in industrial lubricants, I worked in um, in fuel additive and fuel delivery here in the U.S. Uh, for about seven years. And uh, one of the things that you learn about uh, water in general, particularly as it touches fuel supplies or any type of uh, hydrocarbon supply network, at least here in the U.S., is that water is never uh, pH neutral. It's not ideally pH 7.00. There's water has a history of what it has seen pretty much in the liquid form over the previous century of its rolling around the planet. So there's there's always water that's acidic, water that's caustic, high pH, low pH. And you have to consider um, your operational environment, how you're actually going to uh, worry about that. And the thing about esters is that they're both <clears throat> esters are both sensitive to acid and they're sensitive to, to base. So that therein lies the problem. You can, you can uh, have a alkylated naphthalene or hydro uh, PAO based base stock in the presence of just about any kind of uh, environmental uh, pH spectrum you could think about. And they just don't hydrolyze. They don't do anything. They just sit there and, form two layers eventually. You know, they're mostly um, insoluble in each other. So um, that's the, the first thing about alkylated naphthalenes is that they, you know, it's a it's essentially a fusion of an olefin, you know, the tailpiece and a fused C10 aromatic uh, ring. So you have something that looks sort of like a, um, uh, an octopus with a single tentacle coming out of that, right? So in solution, that's kind of the way they behave. Um, and eventually the, the degradation mechanism is usually by oxidation at, very, at fairly high temperatures. So the thing about inoculated naphthalene is that you've got uh, the core is the ring structure, and then you've got the tail that's sort of hanging off the side, but there's always next, the, the carbon that's next to the benzene ring that the hydrocarbon tail is attached to has a single methyl group and one hydrogen. And that hydrogen is, a chemist would say, is the labile uh, hydrogen. So that's usually where the alkylated naphthalene begins its degradation process. So usually a, some kind of a hot radical, um, some type of uh, radical species or uh, not even a, a very strong base will have to be an extremely strong base, but mostly it's by, uh, by oxidative radicals that will extract that proton, form a radical stabilized next to the aromatic ring, and that begins the degradation process. <clears throat> we actually did a, a bunch of work with um, the folks up in Clinton before I retired. And uh, we actually looked at um, the alkylated naphthalene base stocks that ExxonMobil had, and we analyzed the headspace above the solution um, as we uh, 
slowly heated a solution of alkylated naphthalene, and then you'd analyze the gases that would come off in the presence of either nitrogen or in an oxidative environment. And by and large, that's what you see. You see the naphthalene come off and you see the, the hydrocarbon feces come off. And there's really not a lot that you, you tend to see before it begins to degrade. So that's one of the really elegant things about alkylated naphthalene <clears throat> relative to PAO or uh, esters is that when esters hydrolyze, they form two species of the, you know, the acid and the alcohol. And, you know, with a hydrocarbon, you've got, you know, whatever those things look like. But with naphthalated naphthalene, it, it scissions apart and usually the two pieces are volatile and they actually leave the, um, either the reaction space or they, they leave the operational conditions, which is kind of a, an elegant solution to uh, a lube that sort of falls apart and leaves, doesn't leave any uh, negative residues behind. So hmm. uh, I hope that answers your question about why alkylated naphthalene decomposes at a very high temperature and it decomposes in, in a fairly predictable way uh, so that uh, the species that do generate tend to volatilize out. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and I, I guess that that points to a little bit about why it's becoming, you know, more more popular not just in the industrial applications, but we're starting to see it a bit more in engine oils too, right? Um, and and that makes sense, right? If it if it's uh, relatively stable in the presence of water, um, and its decomposition pathway is not to form acids and alcohols like an ester does, then I can see that there's there's some uh, certainly some benefits there, and and like we've talked about, I think in previous episodes here. Um, you know, I think the, the prevailing, uh, let's say opinion has always been that a high viscosity index is better. And you even see that with the API categories, right? As you go from one to two to three to four, VI, VI increases. Uh, yeah. and that's really kind of a holdover from more or less the engine oils where, yes. where high VI is good, but in an industrial application where your gearbox is more or less operating in a very narrow temperature window, um, you know, for 98%, let's say, of its operating life, um, you know, do you really care about VI all that much? Um, uh, it, there, there are some caveats, like the, yep. the, the northern tiers, you know, very, you know, very high uh, latitude uh, wind turbines, for example, or industrial applications in, you know, where there's a lot of temperature swinging back and forth. You do have to worry about low temperature startup versus the actual operating temperature that you have to deal with. But I think you're right, 95 to 98% of the time, that viscosity index really shouldn't play into folks' uh, you know, an engineer's uh, decision about what to pick yeah. for a, a lubrication application. Cool. Um, maybe a, <clears throat> another way of looking at this as well is um, I find, you know, when, when you talk to a lot of people about industrial lubricants, um, often people have a sort of a better technical foundation in the automotive lubricants, right? Mm. Not only because, um, you know, they're so common and they make up so much volume in our sector, um, but also because, you know, a lot of people that we work with will work on their own car. Um, and so that's probably been their pathway into lubricant technologies, right? The, the, the first time you ever really have to deal with a lubricant is when you do an oil change on your own car. Um, so <clears throat> with that, we've obviously got two different, if you'd like, breeds of, of gear oils, right? You've got the automotive gear oils and the industrial gear oils. Um, and as a, as a non-formulator, um, just looking at some of the spec sheets and things like that, they always seem to be quite different almost like they were, um, had different origins. So a lot of the automotive gear oils will have, um, so it will seemingly have a lot of additives that sort of seem like holdovers from the engine oil world versus a lot of the industrial gear oils seem to be um, built, built differently, let's say. Um, True. So why, why is that? And, and could you please help explain maybe some of the differences between them? Uh, well, um, the, the quick and dirty on that is that, yeah, the, the automotive formulating tradition, if you will, um, predates that of uh, a lot of the industrial lubes 
uh, formulating tradition. So they, you know, the industrial lubricant formulation specificity really didn't start to evolve until the 1940s or 1950s. You know, I, I actually had some of the pleasure to, to meet people who were way older than me when I was, uh, before I had any of this gray hair, uh, who were sort of the beginners of uh, that bifurcation around World War II times of uh, very specific industrial lubes. And industrial lubes at that time, you know, in the 30s and 40s, 1930s, 1940s timeframe, they were very simple lubricants. They were, they were essentially just lightly additized base stock for very specific uh, applications. And uh, the automotive world, as it were, had a chance to evolve specifications and make a lot of mistakes and break a lot of machines. And usually when there's a, a lot of uh, failures uh, in, a, in a mechanical device or in a very specific type of mechanical design that tends to drive specifications, right? And you'll see that with the automotive specifications. They look very odd compared to the very large uh, machinery that, that uh, is common to industrial lubricants today. You know, the, uh, the, there's the, the famous saying, you have to be careful to loosen up behind the wheel. And uh, that, that, <laughs> that really goes back to worrying about the, the driver problem, right? In industrial settings, you don't have, you, you rarely have a, an errant driver. Usually that's the guy that's about to be fired. But in the automotive sector, you have to formulate to the least common denominator, right? The, the least competent driver, the, the, the most abusive roadway, the uh, lowest uh, design quality gearbox and drivetrain systems, right? So that's really what a lot of things like the sulfur phosphorus chemistry that you see. So there's people who talk about EP type of additives, you know, that's a heavily sulfurized olefins that, you know, essentially just prevent shock loading type of damage. You don't tend to worry about that in, in high quality industrial gear. Um, yet, you know, you could just, I'm, I'm sitting here in St. Louis and there's a road not to the principal highway, probably about a quarter mile away. And I can hear people stopping and starting and screeching and trucks zooming up and down. And those are all like normal operations of, you know, speed load changes all the time. Right. So you could, you could sort of understand why the, the automotive sector, even though the, the, the overall loads are, are, are lower, if you, you will compared to the industrial uh, type of application, um, but the, the the operational environments continue have for over a hundred years and continue to be today very abusive environments, even in mild temperature conditions. And then layered on top of that, you've got you know the <clears throat> the guy in Saskatchewan in January. He's got to try and get get his truck moving at negative forty C, and if he's got to make a delivery down to Key West three days later. Right? He's got to worry about high humidity and, you know, plus 30 C, you know, so there's that, that, that really odd uh, uh, overlay of performance demand environment that goes into the automotive sector. And that, that, that sort of tradition that they came out of, which is when, when you really think about it, do you re really need dispersants and detergents all that much in an automotive gear oil? Because they're there to manage combustion um, byproducts from hydrocarbons, the, you know, free radicals, the, the acids, the bases, the nitrates, the sulfides. You know, the, those are the things that you don't see in industrial setting, and you really don't see those in an automotive gear oil. But those that tradition of formulating sort of still carries on through today. If you look at the chemistry that goes into a an automotive gear oil. A lot of it doesn't really need to be there, but I think there's there's so many specifications that are built up over so many decades that you're never going to move those out of the way. There's that mm -hmm. that that finite chance that oh, I really don't know if I take this out of the the formulation is I'm really going to have a problem, right? So, and that that's the that's the issue you've got. In industrial lubricants, you have the luxury of uh, 10, 50, you know, 20, maybe 30,000 
users of a specific type of gearbox, right? But in the automotive arena, you've got millions of users of, you know, there's a, there was a body count that was done on a, um, uh, uh, one of these car and driver magazines I was reading about a month ago where they, they, they counted up, there's over 1,100 different cars that are available in the U.S. for sale, brand new. And then you've got, you know, the, the fleet that's on the road is anywhere from 11 to 15 years old. And you've got antique cars and you've got, you know, hybrid cars. So, you've, you know, you, you, you think about how many cars rotate in and out of just the North American fleet. It could be as many as 15 million every year coming and going out of what's on the road. And then there's, you know, 30 different species of mechanical applications. So I, I, I get it why the automotive sector is, is heavily additized and very conservative and hungover because they, they have to formulate to a, a, the loosen up behind the wheel. That's, that's really the bottom line. And so if you want a, a pithy little say, you know, yeah, watch yeah. out for that loosen up behind the wheel. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. You, you, you talked a little bit about um, the EP additives there, which are, um, you know, if you like a feature of a lot of uh, gear oils. Um, I know the the distinction between uh, like an anti-wear additive versus what what is an EP additive. That line sort of seems to get blurred a little bit depending on who you talk yeah. to. Um, just sort of putting different labels on, on different additives. Um, but it might be helpful to talk about some of the different types, right? So we've got you know, there's the ZDDP style, which have contained both sulfur and phosphorus. And then you mentioned sulfurized olefins. Um, then, of course, you know, there's been a slightly big deal in uh, the wind turbine world, at least, over going to um, no or, or low sulfur formulations, right? And having mostly a, a phosphorus base, um, you know, EP or anti-wear package, whatever you want to call it. So would we be able to talk a little bit about some of the advantages and disadvantages of those um, and, and maybe how, how they work in service too? Because uh, I don't think that people have a really good understanding of that. Yeah, so, so if you go, again, it's, it's, it's kind of handy to look at a, a chemistry question like that with a timeline. And, you know, I, I drive my kids crazy because I always go back to World War II, right? That's... <laughs> I mean, for a lot of a lot of people around the world, that was like the, the benchmark for changes in society. But it was effectively a, a giant change in the way machines and uh, manufacturing of different uh, materials, chemistry around the world. So um, if you think about <clears throat> uh, sloppy gears, you know, you're, let's say you're you're uh, you're manufacturing gears for uh, a pre-World War II Ford Model T. And you've got a manufacturing tolerance that's plus or minus a tenth of an inch. No lie, that's probably it. <laughs> so you've got, you got a lot of backlash going on. You got a lot of flop in the bearings. There's, it's standardized parts, you know, kind of like, you know, you can plug and play Legos from, you know, bearings from this manufacturer and gears from this manufacturer. But, there's not a lot of uh, precision. And that, that sloppiness in uh, parts quality, if you will, sort of lent itself naturally to these uh, EP type of additives, uh, sulfurized olefins and whatnot. So when you're dealing with things that have a lot of shock loading and backlash, uh, the, the sulfurized olefins building up uh, uh, a, a, sulfur, a sulfur based fat layer for lack of a better term, on a steel, uh, on an iron surface, is just perfect for protecting uh, when you're dealing with uh, not necessarily heavy loads, but uh, intermittent uh, shock loads. And those, those chemistries are still good for that application. But when you start evolving things to a more precise manufacturing tolerance, again, you know, post-World War II, things are looking tighter and tighter. So specifications go from, say, a tenth of an inch. I'm sure it's not that bad, but 
Um, <laughs> let's say it's a, just an easy thing to a hundredth of an inch and then a thousandth of an inch or, you know, fractions of a, a hundredth of a millimeter plus or minus for a gear uh, being ground by a computer these days. So you can predict what opinion will do to a wheel and that backlash and that play in there is essentially gone in modern manufacturing. So you don't really need that kind of uh, backlash protection, sloppiness protection. And that's where the elegance of phosphorus-based, you know, phosphate esters, amine phosphates, heterocyclic phosphorus compounds, that's the, they put a very thin anti-layer anti-wear layer on the steel surface and they do a much better job of protecting a heavily loaded high torque transfer, high speed um, uh, load transfers in more tightly machined uh, gear, uh, gears and bearings. Now, when you talk about uh, zinc dithiophosphate, ZDDP, that's, not, that's a, an innovation that came during World War II as the ideal anti-wear additive that sort of one chemistry did it all and continued to do it all for decades and decades and does it today. You know, that's the go-to anti-wear additive. But it, and, and it forms protective uh, in the microscopic sense. Uh, it forms protective uh, layers of uh, glasses, if you will, that form very hard patchy surfaces on top of steel. You can't see them with the naked eye. You really can't see them with a microscope have to you know look for these things with with very sophisticated type of um, instrumentation and and, and uh, analytic uh, methods but these these type of anti-wear uh, layers uh, are probably good for say 80 85 percent of most uh, anti-wear protection it's when you get into the very heavily loaded very highly loaded uh, gears where you're talking about um, FCG style uh, scuffing protection. That's when you have a lot of sliding forces. Um, that's where the ZDDPs kind of just don't function all that well. And you get into the more exotic phosphate esters and amine phosphates and whatnot. So in my mind, there's sort of three levels the, 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 of chemistry to, to reach for. There's the phosphorus nitrogen compounds that you see in wind turbines that are really good for heavily, very heavily loaded gearing, very high precision gearing. And then below that, you'll find ZDDP style formulations that are broadly generic for a lot of things. And then there's the sulfurized olefins and what are called EP, you know, extreme pressure type additives. Uh, those are for the more sloppy, um, you know, crazy shock loading kind of systems. So, I don't, did that help at all? Yeah, that, no, that was of, that was really good. And there's actually quick, sorry, quick and dirty, yeah. just a quick and dirty sort of overview. Yeah, no, that's 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 great. And and there's maybe um, a couple of questions I'd uh, like to tease out from that because um, you mentioned FCG testing, and then we also talked about uh, the sulfurized olefins. And so there's questions I've got about you know, compatibility with metals and things like that, about, about that. But maybe if we touch on the FCG testing first, um, you know, as an end user of a lot of these lubricants, I think most people's exposure to FCG testing is just what they see on the spec sheet, right? So, mm. you know, they'll see fail stage, whatever, 10, you know, 11, mm. whatever it is. And people use that um, kind of as a benchmark for, or how good is this thing? going to resist, well, let's say scuffing wear, right? Um, um, that's that's kind of everyone's limit of exposure to, to the testing. So if we were to, you know, peek back behind the curtain and, and look from the formulation side, um, what is the, the benefit of FZG testing? Are we all doing it just because it's become an industry benchmark or is it helpful mm -hmm. to inform the formulation uh, and the reason I, I ask is because um, now when you, you know, in, in what, what is it, the 2020s that we're in now, if you look across different brands of, of industrial gear oils, you know, let's say an FCG, whatever I'm looking at, let's say fail stage, you know, 10 or whatever, it, it, it's almost like there's, there's table stakes, right? Where, where every, basically every formulation meets a minimum criteria. And then there's, there's no differentiation beyond that. So it makes it look like 
every formulation is is equally as capable of resisting scuffing wear or whatever it is. Um, so um, my question to you is why, what is, why are we using FCG testing um, and, and how does it help you as, a, uh, as someone on the formulation side? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> there's, it, it, there's an anecdote here in the US. We say that there's a title reserved for the guy that graduates last in his class of medical school. And you know what that is? It's doctor, right? <laughs> the problem is that getting through medical school in the U.S. is so difficult that even if you're the poor schmuck that graduates last in his class with the lowest grades, you're still a pretty good doctor, right? You can, you should be able to solve most problems, right? Yeah. And just, just to be clear, because I have, <laughs> I have a lot of, a lot of friends uh, who are, who happen to be doctors. And uh, actually, most of my friends from high school happen, happen to be doctors. This is always a bone of contention that I have with them is that you can get through medical school by scoring 51% on all your exams. <laughs> and I'm not sure that I want to be treated by a doctor who's wrong 49% of the time. Well, <laughs> I, I realize what my current audience is an engineer. So in the engineering world, we're used to, you know, the, the, the 95% uh confidence interval yeah, yeah you know in the biological world if they if they could get an 80 percent confidence <laughs> interval they're 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 almost yeah, nobel they're laureates right so i mean you have to sort of calibrate you know the the mission statement there yeah. what you what you want you know it's like uh it, it, it um it, it's it's as if the 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 fcg scuffing requirement is as you say table stakes for uh, a reasonable performing lubricant, and that's uh, scuffing by and large is is a you know it's a high temperature, high speed failure, right? And that pretty much um, uh, pretty much requires um, some type of anti wear protection that's going to mitigate that surface sliding in a tremendous way. The other thing, one of the little sidebar about FCG scuffing tests, uh, I, I knew the guy that, uh, uh, one of the guys that actually was the um, originator of the test, his name was um, Klaus Michaelis. He's a professor at the FCG Institute in Munich. Interesting character, <clears throat> all those guys, these guys are, you wanna talk about engineers who are out there, you know, really super crazy smart uh, anybody at the fcg as a professor is just absolutely out there but you know that the, they're always being criticized uh in public forums like this is a ridiculous gear this is an absurd operating condition how could you possibly think that any engineer in their right mind is that, how could you teach engineering at a, a prestigious school like this and get away with selling these gears for a thousand bucks a pop, you know, for something that's about the size of your fist. And the answer is that it's, it's actually a, a chemical evaluation test before it's a gear test, right? So, and, and you run into that problem with uh, the FCG micropitting test as well. Micropitting gears are ridiculous. They, they have crazy kinds of root profiles that, Nobody in their right mind as a gear designer would, would put out there as something that's reasonable. But it is a gear test, right? So you're evaluating chemistry in the presence of a real gear operating in a real gear box, right? So that's the intersection of the two things. You're not dealing with uh, some crazy little pin on disc or, you know, ball on ball or a four ball test, you know, that, you know, you, you run the risk of isolating, when you isolate the tribological problem too much, it moves away from the actual interference with all the other variables that are operating in a, in a particular uh, application, like a gearbox, for example. And that, I mean, that's one of the things to keep in mind about the FCG test is that it's <clears throat> in its stripped out form, it's still a gear, a pair of gears spinning around, you know, in a gearbox, under controlled temperature and load conditions. So at least you, you, you have the, the table stakes, you have the minimum standards to which you can point your finger at and go, 
you know, if I didn't get an FCG fail stage 11, then chances are it's not going to work well in that little Toyota over there or that gearbox in General Electric's, you know, steel mill application or whatever it is, right? So it's it's one of those uh, specifications that's the, that's almost like a quacks like a duck. All ducks quack, right? Quack. Oh, that's not a bear. Quack. That's that's not a sea lion. Quack. That's that's not a howler monkey. You know, you you got to have something in your list of specifications that says, you know, does it quack like gear oil, right? And the answer is that it doesn't quack like a gear oil. It has an FCG scuffing load specification, right? So and you can look at any kind of hydrocarbon like that, like jet fuel. Jet fuel is an example, the most fungible hydrocarbon on the planet. And it, you know, a drop of jet fuel coming out of a refinery in Paulsboro, New Jersey, looks the same as a drop of jet fuel coming out of Adelaide uh, down under, right? Why? Why is that? Because the specification list has got 32 things on it, and those 32 things are, you know, as as tight as a, a an eye of a needle. Right. So that when you specify something that your table stakes do more than just assure your ability to sit at the ten dollar table or the thousand dollar table at the gambling hall. Right. It assures that you, you know what you're doing in terms of what a gear oil is or what a jet jet fuel is. Right. So uh, to me, the FCG test, <clears throat> it, it is table stakes to get you to like stage 11 or something like that. But like with wind turbine oils. They are all page 14. You know, each stage is 20% more load than the previous stage, right? So if you look at a stage 14, that's almost double the, the load of stage 10. And there, there's some discussions there. The FCG Institute is going to go beyond stage 14 at this point to shore, you know, higher and higher loads. Uh, I don't know if that's really going to happen or not, but, you know, they're, you know, once you, you get into specifying high scuffing protection, hot, like wind turbine oils that we talked about previously, high scuffing protection, high microprating protection, almost ensures that you're going to struggle with good bearing performance, roller element bearing performance, which is extremely important. So then you got the, the, the Bermuda Triangle, for lack of a better term, you know, the critical, you know, the, 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 the three legs of the stool that are most important scuffing, micropitting, and roller element bearing. So the, you've got FIG Scheffler, they have a, a protocol of four or five tests that are required to you know, call a, a, a gear oil, a, a reasonable gear oil. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think it goes beyond just, here's this, this test uh, and it's called XYZ. You know, it's, you, you need, if it's called a scuffing test, Scuffing is an important failure mode that needs to be mitigated, and it's actually a it's actually a, um, a protocol that you could use to say, okay, I'm protected up to a certain operating temperature, and then the lube fails. Mm. And that's kind of the way I would advise looking at the FCG scuffing test. Yeah, cool, awesome. Um, <clears throat> as we sort of start to um, finish up the discussion on gear oils, um. I always like to end these interviews with a bit of a question about the future. And um, when we brought up the sulfurized olefins, it started getting me thinking about, you know, compatibility issues with copper and and the fact that, uh, you know, let's say, for example, like the, the, the style of gear oil that you can use in a standard industrial gearbox is often not compatible with, um, let's say, a worm gear drive, right? Because of the, the, the yellow oh, metal yeah. content. Uh, on, on the worm or sorry, on the, on the wheel. Um, <clears throat> so um, maybe a question, which is maybe geared, excuse the pun, uh, to, uh, to the future. There's a lot of discussion right now around um, electric vehicles and new requirements for lubricants that are going to go into electric vehicles. Now there's discussions about um, the architecture of an electric vehicle, because that's not really baked in yet. Um, and whether it's a single lubricant system that has to do battery cooling as well as, you know, protecting the motor as well as protecting the transmission, 
you know, so that's the Porsche style um, architecture, right? With with they had on the Taycan versus let's say a Tesla, which is mostly water cooled. Um, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of no one's really landed on what is the optimal platform yet. Having said that, it seems like one thing that all the uh, EV fluids are going to have to more or less have in common is protection of the electric motor as well as the transmission. In a lot of electric vehicles, that seems to be a single unit now. And the um, one of the prevailing issues is the uh, that you're trying to design a lubricant which is uh, suitable for, a, like it's basically a gear oil, right? You know, designing it for a transmission, but that is compatible with the copper windings in the motor. Um, That's a tough mission. Now that seems to kind of lend itself to a little bit of a discussion on the on the additives as well. Um, for people that don't really have a, a firm grasp on what, why is this such a hard problem? Um, could you please help maybe point out, you know, why that's a, that that's a difficult thing? Wow. Um, yep. The the basic thing is the copper, right? So you you, you touched a little bit about. Um, uh, worm drive applications. I mean, one of the key things about a, a worm gear uh, is it's it, it's uh, it's copper alloy of the wheel. So, in in the case of a worm gear, torque is put in into a helical structure called the worm, but the receiver is the wheel. And the, these gearboxes have a, a lot of advantages, right? They, they're very quiet compared to steel and steel gearing. Uh, very compact. You can get tremendous reduction ratios, 100 to 1 reduction ratio in a single contact in a very quiet gearbox. You tend to see them, you know, used a lot in human contact applications like uh, escalators, elevators, uh, assembly line applications where humans are putting things together and things are moving past them. Those are all dominated by worm gears and whatnot um, and other applications as well. And those those applications are sort of the vanguard of, of leading that chemistry question away from the older style sulfur FOSS chemistry. You put sulfur FOSS chemistry into a worm drive gearbox and you'll essentially destroy them. Uh, the, the sulfur gets very reactive. Um, sulfur in the periodic table is right underneath of oxygen. So chemists always go back to the periodic table. Sorry about that. but. Oxygen, you know, there's an old saying, you know, rust never sleeps and neither does thiodation. You know, oxidation is oxygen adding on to things and oxidizing things, but sulfur right below it reacts in a very similar fashion that oxygen does. And, you know, if you, if it's slower, it's different, but it's a very similar process. You know, if you look at silver, for example, silver uh, will turn black if you let a, a, a pure silver coin or a piece of silverware sit in an atmosphere, you know, in, in a household, it will eventually turn black over a short period of time. And what's happening is that all the free sulfur that's in the air is reacting with the silver and forming silver sulfide on the surface. And copper and silver react in oxidative conditions and sulfidation conditions in a very similar fashion. So sulfur will under ambient conditions and under higher temperature conditions readily react with things like silver and copper. And copper itself, you know, it has a fairly low oxidation potential. So that's a chemist's way of saying that it will readily react with oxygen in the presence of water, atmospheric water, atmospheric oxygen. Um, you know, just take a, a copper penny and put it into a cup of water for a week and let me know how green it is. And that green is the beginning of copper oxide, cuprous oxide and then cubric oxide, two different oxidation states that are common for copper. Um, so that therein lies the, 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 the clue as to, as to what copper, copper is an ideal conformal metal. It's great for things like worm gears. My, uh, Sorry, my phone is doing funny things here with one of my children in New Jersey is having fit. So sorry. <laughs> so um, so so 
copper will readily react with, with, with sulfur and copper also readily reacts with oxygen. Um, in fact, the uh, copper is not found in the environment unless it's in the plus two or plus, plus one oxidation state, right? So you, you look at the, the famous American image of the Statue of Liberty. You know, when the Statue of Liberty was brand new 150 years ago, it looked like a bright copper penny. But sitting there in, in the harbor, it's turned green, right? So that's cop copper oxide forming on the surface. And all copper will do that in the presence of, of atmospheric conditions. And you put in an electric vehicle, copper is a, a perfect conductor. It's a, it's, it's a relatively inexpensive wire, right? If you really wanted to make a great wire, you'd make it out of silver, but then that's 10 times the cost, right? So copper is readily available for wiring applications and it will be relatively stable over a long period of time if you protect it. But now you put it, you put it in an electric motor and you start developing rotors and stators, right? So it, these electric fields get generated, collapse on a microsecond time basis, you know, in these motor controller applications, they have to be naked copper. They have to be fully exposed copper metal. And that fully exposed copper metal is now not only subject to all this atmospheric nonsense that every other piece of copper is subject to, rust never sleeps, um, but also you've got these electric currents. You know, when you have single electron transfer uh, processes where you've got DC currents, put a DC current on something positive and negative, it's gonna just look at the terminals in the, your car battery, you can see, one turns greenish white and the other one will turn whitish, whitish green. And that's simply the oxidation reduction of the electrons moving through a, a, a DC battery. Your most automotive applications are DC. Now, when you deal with electric vehicles, they have an AC, DC, you know, who knows what the protocol is with electrical generation and these different things. So when you start throwing in stray currents, currents that are doing work, in a, an electromechanical device with exposed copper, now all of a sudden you just, you, you've got a recipe for disaster. It, it, it's another problem that has to be mitigated for lubricant uh, folks. You know, you, you've got to figure out a way to not only protect, like, like we've done for a century now, protecting bronze, roller element bearings, cages, uh, wheels in, Worm gears, we figured out how to do all these things. Now you add to that the lubricant that's going to protect the gearing system and it's going to somehow cool off a hot electrical transfer operation. That's a whole nother mission for the chemistry to do, right? You've got, if you've got to, you've got all these, as a chemist, I, I look at the, the copper in the, these electric vehicle systems. I see all this electric current going back and forth. To me, I see electrons moving like a, like a swaying breeze on the a grass field of electrons moving through these wires, doing all these different things inside of an electric vehicle. And you've got the overlay of all the, the normal jobs that lubricant's supposed to do for that motor or gearing system. And that, therein lies the problem, is that copper is a very sensitive metal. And now you're putting it into not just the normal suspects of gearing abuse, but you're also putting a whole bunch of electrical demand on that copper in the presence of all this load and temperature. So it's, you've got this swirling intersection of variables that have yet to be wrestled to the ground. As soon as there's a, a single, um, a single configuration, you know, most children can look at a fish and say, that's a fish. It's, it's not a flamingo, right? So once you decide what an electric vehicle looks like, you know, in terms of its anatomy, you know, all fish look like fish and pretty much most of them are. So once the electric vehicle people become more like fish, then we can sort of figure out how to optimize the chemistry. But if you've got the Porsche methodology, you've got the Tesla methodology, you've got, um, what is it, LG, who makes the, the Chevy Bolt for, for GM here in North America. You've got uh, a whole different kettle of fish going on with uh, Kia and Hyundai. 
I mean, I try to read about these things, but in, as soon as I do, my mind blows up. I'm like, you could easily make a map of seven or eight different methods of using a DC battery to make this car go. But, and it's all the, the nuts and bolts of making the electrons and the gears do whatever they got to do. But my, my take on this is, you know, keep it as simple as possible. You know, the gearing systems, the automatic transmissions, the manual transmissions, all that's been known forever and ever. Isolate the gears from the electric motor, and then you can easily start to solve problems. Don't try to just smash it all together. That's that's one of the problems with it, with a guy like Musk, you know, he's, ah, I don't need that. I don't need that hundred years of wisdom from General Motors or Ford or any of these people. I'm just going to make a whole new car here in Southern California. Well, I don't know. If you have you really have you really looked carefully at a Tesla? You know the, the bodies are shit, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they really don't know how to build the body of a car, and their recalls are through the roof. For most of it is is build quality. They're getting that together, but. You know, it, it's it's the kind of thing where if you want to go faster and you want to go more reliable, use as much that's known that's already been worked out, you know, before you start getting exotic with saying, oh, if I only had this one lube that did everything. That's the problem with the Swiss Army knife, right? Swiss Army knives can do everything, but they do nothing perfectly. Yeah. Right. And therein lies the rub. You're never going to get a Swiss Army knife that you could perform an appendectomy with, right? You need a scalpel, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm just throwing out examples. No, that, Maybe that's, I'm rambling too much. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, well, that, that, that seems like a, a great place to stop the, uh, the year oils discussion. So, uh, so Jim, really appreciate your time. And sure. uh, yeah, we'll, we'll obviously talk soon. Yeah. Electric vehicles, man, that's going to be fun for chemists and engineers and the, in the next two decades, man, that's going to be an, an exciting place to be. Yep. So buckle your seatbelt and uh, <laughs> plug in your battery. <laughs> All right. Um, All right, man. You take it easy, Rafe. Bye. Thanks. Or,